Good morning. morning. And third time's a charm. It's great. So if you can pull out your sermon notes. And uh, I just want to say before uh, I I get started here that how uh, thrilled Leanna and I are to be here. Just the grace that has been poured out. We just appreciate Village Church. And we've been staying with the Hups. And they have been outrageously uh, gracious to us and hospitable, and so and and Michael, and uh, and uh, we got to spend uh, the day with he and his wife on Saturday, and it was just really really a good time, and so we've been very blessed, and we want to bring a blessing to you from God's word, and so that's what we're about this morning. So if you can just take a look at your sermon notes and go there to Ecclesiastes twelve eleven and twelve. I'm going to ask you to go to some other places this morning in the text, but. Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes, we're going to come back to it often. So I want to get, uh, get started there. The thing is, when I was growing up, I used to watch uh, old uh, episodes of a show, This Is Your Life. And the host, Ralph Edwards, he would have a personalized, oversized book of the guest's life. And he would bring the guest out before a live audience, and he would open up the book, and he would start telling the story of this person's life from this book. And at key moments, he would bring in people from their life, maybe even people that they hadn't seen in in years. And they would be reunited, and then together they would tell the story of the significant events in their life that had uh, brought together their relationship. And this would happen throughout the story, and maybe two or three times during the show. And then at the end, uh, the host, Ralph, would give the guest the book, and then as the camera faded back, you'd, you'd see casual conversation going on amongst everybody on the stage. And I bring that up this morning because this sermon series has been a bit like having King Solomon as a guest on our own version of This Is Your Life. And here we are. The main difference, though, is that what we've read from the book of Solomon's life has not been of our doing, and the significant aspects of his life are not been those we've decided, but those that God has chosen and expressed himself through the writing of other biblical authors, including Solomon himself. So here's where we're going this morning. We are looking at Solomon's conclusion to his own life, and he says the end of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. We're going to look at why that's so hard for us to do, and despite how hard it is, how we can get godly wisdom. So we're looking at Solomon now. At the end of his life, he's an old man. He's been the king of Israel for almost 40 years. And that is a long reign. And here is the conclusion he comes to from his own life in Ecclesiastes 12, 11 through 14. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So do you ever see somebody younger than yourself making a mistake or doing something that you've done? And you're just like, oh, I I warned them of that. And if they just listened to me and they wouldn't have made that mistake, I could have saved them that hardship. Or, 
Or maybe you're a parent and you see your children making some of the same mistakes that you made in your life. And you're like, oh, if they had just listened to me, I could have saved them this heartache for making these mistakes. Well, in this case, Solomon is the father and we are the children. And he is desperately warning us and wants us to avoid the foolish mistakes that he has made in his life. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. And because of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ and the Spirit's work in our hearts, we are able to learn those lessons, choose a different path, and love and act wisely toward one another. So God uses Solomon to display the dual epitomes of both wisdom and folly. Right? And I have three arguments for why that's true of Solomon. Because nobody except Christ was given more wisdom on earth than Solomon. And no one was better equipped to pursue the wisdom of the knowledge of God or the foolishness of idolatry more than Solomon. He had vast wealth, vast resources, vast authority. And so he just spent it all uh, pursuing folly more than any of us could. Therefore, Solomon is uniquely qualified and in a position to declare the end of the matter to us. Because Ecclesiastes is a quest to find meaning in life. And Ecclesiastes 12, 11 through 14 is Solomon's conclusion after pursuing satisfaction in created things rather than in the creator of all things. So in his conclusion, I believe Solomon finally achieves what we've been referring to as godly wisdom. And one hopes that Solomon, in the end, took his own advice. So will we see Solomon in heaven? I think that's a good question. And interpreters are divided on this. And there's not really agreement. And you're going to have to come to your own decision. But personally... I think we will see Solomon in heaven because I believe that Solomon's conclusion cannot be achieved by earthly cultural wisdom, but can only come by the grace and wisdom of God to him. So Solomon's conclusion may be summed up in the phrase, fear God and follow his, keep his commandments. But how does this work itself out for us? That's the question. Let's begin to unpack this statement by seeing how Solomon came to this conclusion. So vanity is the word Solomon uses about everything is vanity. Says at the beginning, says at the end. And it does not mean ultimate meaningless or self-preoccupation like it does today. The word literally means vapor. It is like a breath, a mist, a puff of smoke, and a pipe dream. Just like you were outside this morning breathing. It was there and it was gone. Gone. That is vanity. And that's what... Solomon is saying everything is. Now, there are two implications of this that will help us understand Solomon better. The first is that vapors are temporary. They don't last. They are here today and they're gone tomorrow. And while they're here, they're unpredictable and they're unreliable. And then they're gone. Because you, you ever see the breath come out of your mouth? You don't know exactly what that puff's going to do and then it's gone. You can't depend on it. The second thing is that these are things that must be repeated over and over again. In his book, Joy at the End of the Tether, Douglas Wilson describes vanity, things that are vain, as inscrutable repetitiveness. And here's what he means by that. You just washed the dishes last night, but you got to wash them again. They get dirty. Or you just changed oil in your car three months ago, 
but you have to do it again. You just changed that dirty diaper a little while ago, and now you've got to change it again. You just ate breakfast this morning, and you're going to have to eat again. Over and over again, we have to do these things. And the thing is, by themselves, God's gifts are short-lived blessings. They don't last by themselves. But God is greater than his gifts because he is the eternal one shepherd that Solomon refers to who gives meaning to everything, including our own lives. Wisdom is solid. Like God, you can hang your hat on it, like nails in the wall. But in fact, what Solomon refers to as nails in the wall would be better understood by us today as rivets in steel girders building skyscrapers that you can go up to the 50th floor, the 60th floor, and not fear that the whole thing is going to come crashing down. It's solid. You can depend on it. You can rely on it. They're like goads that a farmer would use as his cattle want to wander left or right. He would use goads to kind of point them back so that the furrows in his field are straight. They're sure guides. And that's what wisdom is. That's what wisdom is. And so today, we can even see more clearly that the one shepherd that Solomon refers to is Jesus Christ. Everything is from him, through him, and to him. That's who Jesus is. So it's very important that we get the order of enjoyment right. Gifts are not to be worshipped, but enjoyed. As we enjoy God's gifts properly, we will enjoy and worship God. If we reverse this order, Jesus is no longer our God, but a genie who gives us what we really want. And Jesus becomes the means to our ends. But enjoyment of anything above God is idolatry because enjoying something as ultimate is worship. That's what worship is. And joy becomes depression, disillusionment, and despair, ending in destruction if we worship things that will not satisfy. As you've already heard Michael preach, when the means becomes the ends, they will destroy us. We see this in Ecclesiastes. If you want to just flip back, a uh, few chapters, chapter 2, 24 to 26, Solomon got this. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil or work. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the burden, the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Food, drink, work, even a spouse are given to us as gifts to be enjoyed in their proper place. Notice two things. Everything mentioned here are things Solomon pursued for his joy and meaning and found them to be vanity and a chasing after the wind. As long as they are accepted as coming from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or enjoy anything, then they are enjoyable as means but never as ends, never meant to be the end. Here's the thing, here's an example. When I married Leanna, my wife, I used to think I was a selfless and giving person. I did. And there was, not, there was so much that I wanted for her. But the problem was the things I wanted for her were not necessarily things that she wanted for herself. I wanted to seem generous and giving, but I didn't expect to have to make any unwanted sacrifices, right? And then that didn't work out so well because I was so wrong about that. I was being called by God 
to have godliness and happiness in marriage by constantly sacrificing my own desires for hers. And there was never a point in time where I could say, well, that's enough. I've done enough now. It's my turn. It's my time. No. God calls me to constantly and perpetually sacrifice my own desires for her, for her good. And when I do that, there is real joy in marriage and godliness, and I enjoy it. This is an explicit order between giver and gift. Wisdom is having a right perspective on God, fearing him so as to enjoy, thank, and worship God in and through the gifts that he gives us. Folly is to reject God and worship the gifts themselves as what will satisfy our souls and give us meaning. This is worldly wisdom because it does not see as God sees. So, so far, what have we done? Solomon has helped us see that folly is trying to find meaning in our lives in earthly things and wisdom as finding meaning to life in God. So why then do we find it so hard to be wise and so easy to be fools? Because Wisdom and folly are about good and evil. They are moral issues because they are wrapped up in what we know and think about God. A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so it is. So where does the path of good wisdom and evil folly begin for us? They begin in the heart. That's where the path starts. And then it leads to our heads and to our hands. Finally, this road is a downward spiral. Or it can be an upward spiral if it's wisdom. But in folly, it's a downward spiral and a cycle that just keeps repeating itself. All right, keep your finger in Ecclesiastes and turn with me to Romans 1.18. We're going to take a look at this in the New Testament. Either uh, scroll up, scroll down, flip pages, get there. Follow along with me on this. This is really important to see. So here we are in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now notice, suppressing the truth of God is ungodly and unrighteousness. Well, duh. We didn't need a whole sermon to know that. That seems pretty self-evident. But there's so much more to it than that, right? If we skip down a couple verses to verse 21 and 22, here's what it says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Created stuff. Notice what suppressing the truth is. It's, it's, notice how God describes their hearts as foolish. The root of foolishness is to suppress the truth, which is the rejection of the knowledge of God. Why did they do this? Okay, we're going to see this real clearly. Just skip down to verse 28 with me. 28 breaks up into three parts. I'm going to take them one at a time. The first part of verse 28 says this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Stop there. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. That literally says they did not approve to have God in their knowledge. They didn't approve to have God in their knowledge. I don't even want it in my head that he exists. I don't want it. I just picture this little kid 
just screwing up their face and folding their hands. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to acknowledge God. I don't want him to exist. I want it to be all about me. And isn't, do we, do we just see the evil in that? This is a heart issue. This idea of rejecting the knowledge of God. So then we see what happens in the second part of verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind. Stop there. Because they rejected God in their hearts, God leaves us with minds no longer capable of seeing things the way God sees them. And then what finally follows? Our hands. End of the verse 28. To do what ought not to be done. So God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There's our hands. And what are those things that ought not to be done? The rest of the passage spells it out. Verse 29 through 32. Let me read it for you. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish. There's a word we know. Faithless, hearts, ruthless, or heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I hope you see here, as we look at this text, that what we're reading through here is we see this becoming a dark, repetitive spiral downward, increasing foolishness, evil, and destruction. Does that sound like a good life? Of course it doesn't. We don't want that, but we do. Because we want our own little selfish kingdom, not God's glorious kingdom. But we now see that there can be, it's impossible to find joy apart from God. And so Solomon got this in Ecclesiastes. So flip back with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is how Solomon saw this. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. So now that we see that there are two gifts that we need to receive, the first is the gift itself, whether it's food or drink or a spouse or good work or whatever it is that your heart desires. But the second gift, which is far more important, is the ability to enjoy it. That's what we need most. So these are two distinct gifts. An unbeliever may have fabulous wealth and yet commit suicide. I looked online, dozens of people, fabulously wealthy, have killed themselves. One man, 35 years old, sold his father's business that he inherited for 30 million pounds. That was the equivalent of $46 million. And everyone thought he was well-adjusted and happy. And in 2009, he took his own life, left no note, nobody knows why. $46 million in his pocket, and he kills himself. He was given a great gift and was not given the power to enjoy it. Here's the thing. I've had to struggle with how to enjoy work as well. I used to think enjoying work was about accomplishing something, getting something done. I'm an achievement junkie. Give me a list of tasks. Boom, 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 they're done. Yes, great. But the next day, there's another list of tasks just waiting for me over and over again. And it's not really satisfying 
in the end. There's always the next thing, the next deadline, the next piece of pressure. What I have found that it takes to enjoy my work is that through my work, I love people. And that the measure of my success is that people feel loved by what I do and how I do it. That, for me, is how I find joy in work. See, what I'm doing is that the stuff of earth is never enough to satisfy us. We have to do what we do for eternal purposes or they end in futility for us. That's the way it goes. Only God can give us the wisdom and knowledge of himself that allows us to enjoy his gifts rightly. So the key here, the second gift, is that godly wisdom of knowing and fearing God. This is that gift which allows us to enjoy the gifts rightly. This is biblical godly wisdom. All right? This helps us understand why evil is considered good and folly is considered evil. So then, why does God send us down this dark path and refuse to allow us to enjoy his gifts without knowing, fearing, and loving him? Because he loves us. And in Romans 8, it says he hopes for better things for us in that for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's his hope. God subjects everything to futility in hope that you will understand and have a way of thinking that looks beyond death to ultimate judgment when evil is completely put down and all creation along with God's people are renewed and restored and redeemed. So now we've seen that we are naturally foolish and evil when we reject God. So then how do we become wise? Well, to get wisdom, we have to know and love God and specifically Jesus Christ. We have to know God before we can fear him or see the way he sees things. Knowledge of Jesus is intimate, personal, experiential. It is never merely head knowledge. So let me show you this. The thing is, this is put really sweetly in John 10, 27. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Hear that? God knows his sheep and we are to know him and follow him and know him intimately. So how do we get this knowledge of God now that we've rejected and suppressed it in our own hearts? Okay? Jesus says this in Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Solomon says it this way in Ecclesiastes 12.11 when he writes, The words of the wise... They are given by the one shepherd. God must give us this knowledge. The only way to know God is for Jesus to reveal himself to us. And if we love and trust Jesus, it is because he has chosen to reveal himself to us just as he chose Solomon from the beginning. To have this gift of knowing God is to be loved by God just as Solomon was. If we know God and we love him, then all of our names should be Jedediah, beloved of God. That's who we are. So then, how do we pursue wisdom for our hearts, heads, and hands? Okay, turn with me now. This is, uh, the, this is on your notes here, section 3. We're going to go to Colossians 2. So just flip over there with me. We're going to see this in Galatians and Colossians. There we are. Colossians 2, 1 through 3. 
For I want you to know, Paul says, how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, Paul, well, so what? How do we encourage one another, become knit together in love, reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowing Jesus Christ so that we'll have all the treasures of wisdom? Right? That's the question. There's two parts. There's God's part, which we've already seen. We already know that we need God to act directly and decisively in our hearts by his spirit if we are to know and love Jesus. Then there's our part. And our part is to pursue the means of grace that he has given us. And one way we do that individually, I think, is through the spiritual disciplines, which I love to refer to as means of grace. These are God-given ways of pursuing the grace that he gives us and obtaining the wisdom that he has for us. And a few that I think are just really important are emphasizing, let's studying the Bible. I mean, the Bible is God's revelation to us. It is his self-revelation. It is how we get to know him very specifically, very accurately. So studying the Bible is a way of knowing him and loving what we see. Praying to God is huge because in praying to God, we acknowledge that we are the needy and he is the sufficient. We are the dependent. He is independent. And we receive from him what we need when we ask it from him. Another one is even fasting encourages us to know God better and to generate an intimacy and a dependence on him. The thing is, I'm not a big faster. I don't know if you notice that. I'm not, I don't fast a lot. I, I love food. I love good food. I love to eat. Michael and I have that in common. I enjoyed yesterday. I don't know how many meals we ate. I felt like a hobbit. <laughs> we just ate all the time and every, everything was a meal. So it was good. But here's the thing. My wife, when something big was coming up, she would say, let's fast and pray about this, Kevin. Well, okay, I think we should pray, but that fasting, I don't know. Let's pray. No, Kevin, let's pray and fast. Okay, we'll pray and fast. So we took a day. We did not eat breakfast. We did not eat lunch. We prayed together. We sought the Lord together. And at the end of the day, we broke the fast together at dinner. And it was huge. Because when we set aside the good gifts God gives us, so we only have him to pursue we develop an intimacy and an independence on him independent of the good temporal gifts he gives and it is wonderful and we feel that dependence on God and that intimacy with him when there's just no barrier. And we don't do that all the time. The gifts are there to enjoy. But in fasting, we set aside good gifts for a limited time to pursue him wholeheartedly and it's been a blessing to just understand our dependence on God and to commune with him alone apart from his gifts. So that's been huge for me. And now Leanne and I, we pick one day a month where we fast and pray and we go through that pattern. And uh, it's been very helpful for our marriage and for our pursuit of God. So what else do we, we do? And corporately, oh, and one more thing, in private worship, singing. Corporate worship, singing. Singing to God as a way of stirring up our hearts with passion for the truths that we love. And when we sing about them, our hearts swell, and that's a way of stirring up our hearts to wisdom and to loving God. 
the preaching and teaching of God's word. We can't get everything out of this book by ourselves. We're not meant to. We're meant to study it together, learn from each other in community. So the preaching of the word on Sunday morning or the teaching of the word together in community groups or in classrooms is very important to understanding the word and what God has for us there and knowing and loving God. Fellowship with other believers here at Village Church. Fellowship with one another. Take the time together to share stories of God's grace that's working in your heart so that everybody can see that God is at work in our community. Know and love God. And point out evidences of grace that we see in each other. And this is what I mean by that. Because left to ourselves, we tend to doubt our relationship with God because we know that we fail to measure up. This is a sneaky way that pride and legalism works its way to discourage us. And we're called to encourage one another. So we need to point out what we see of God's work in each other's lives to not only rejoice with them, but also to help them see God's at work in their lives and therefore to enjoy the assurance of the knowledge of God and be encouraged to pursue it all the more. So that's what we need to do because God is working in the life of a believer. There is fruitfulness there and we don't always see our own fruitfulness. We need to point it out to one another. We need to know that our faith is real. Everyone needs this. Unbelievers need to know. If you don't believe in Jesus, you need to know that God's at work and that he wants to save you. And if you're a believer, you need to know God's at work in your heart and he is changing you into being in the image of his son. Then we need to love people sacrificially. Wisdom is like a seed to be sown. And if we don't sow it, nothing will happen, right? It just remains a seed. It won't produce anything. It must be planted and acted upon to bear fruit. Fruit, Fruitless wisdom is like fruitless faith. It's worthless. Worthless wisdom. So we are called to follow Jesus, to die to ourselves in order to imitate him and love others. That is the sowing of the seed in the ground. The gifts he gives us, we sacrifice it. We die to ourselves. We love others. And then when we imitate Jesus, we will experience more of him. One of my biggest fears in in struggles is getting sucked into somebody else's life struggles. Right? I just don't want to. I just, your life's a mess. I don't want to get dirty. My life's a mess too. I got enough problems of my own. But the thing is, life is messy and we're called to invest, not just selfishly stay clean. There's a man in, my, in our building who has mental illness, and I just saw him going through so much struggle and so much heartache, I decided to just reach out to him. And since then, uh, I've been in Bible studies with him. I've helped him move twice. Um, I discovered that he had, when he moved to Minnesota, he had all this stuff that wouldn't fit in his apartment. So he started renting this storage facility that was costing him over $150 a month to keep a lot of stuff that he never even enjoyed. It just was stashed there, costing him a boatload of money every month. And I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. So I went with him and I helped him clean out the storage unit and what to keep and what to throw and what was usable, what to get rid of. And was able to get that thing cleaned out so he could just say, I'm done with it and save all of that money and make good use of his things. And in doing that, I feel the love of God flowing through me. And it's a much better love. It's a much greater joy than if I just kept to myself in my own little small selfish kingdom. Another way is I love tech. I love my tech. The reason why I have a pulpit up here is because I got 
full of tech. That's what pulpits are for. They're for holding tech. And I got tech kept in Michael's office, and, and I, got, I got all this stuff here, and I love it. I, I love it because it makes me independent. I don't need to get directions from you. Just give me an address. I'll plug it in. I'll get there. You know, I, I can be independent with my tech, and I love comfort, right? I love luxury. I love having the best and then taking care of it and enjoying it and having it serve me. It's all about me and escapism. When stress comes, I love to get away, isolate myself, read a book, watch a TV show, watch a movie, just get away from reality, just deny it's out there, just suppress the truth, right? It's all about my little kingdom. It's not about the glory of God. I struggle with that too, and you struggle in your ways, and we need to overcome them. Our hearts are evil. So let me finish with this. All right, let's, let's conclude by looking at Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes. So come back there. And I'm going to say that in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon wraps it up in chapters 11 and 12, he begins exhorting his readers towards wisdom. Now, such exhortations call his readers, call us to decide. They force us to choose. Are we going to take Solomon's advice or not? Are we going to be wise or are we going to be fools? That's what he's asking. We have to choose. So we have already seen that trying to find satisfaction in anything apart from God will be vanity and end in depression and despair, just like it did for Solomon. And we have seen why that's true. Why the knowledge and fear of the Lord are so foundational to wisdom and enjoying life. But perhaps you see your life as being wasted by foolish desires, thoughts, decisions, and actions. I've been there too. I've wasted many years. And just money and time and effort just flushed. But here is the great promise. Take heart. Nothing is wasted that cannot be redeemed. Christ is the great redeemer who restores us to fellowship with him and grants wisdom. Nothing is wasted that will not be restored. And do you lack wisdom this morning? Do you feel like, I don't have this wisdom that Solomon's talking about. Or I don't even know Jesus, so how am I supposed to get this wisdom? Do what James says and ask God, who gives generously and without reproach. Generously. And he doesn't look at you sideways, like, oh, you, you need wisdom? He knows that we are the needy, and he knows that he is the abundant, sufficient one. And he loves to lavish the gift of wisdom, because it is the knowledge and love of himself. So let me sum up with this. Wisdom knows God, fears the Lord, loves and delights in Jesus, understands the world and the will of God rightly, and acts to glorify God and love people for Jesus' sake. Wisdom is eternal life. Foolishness is everlasting death. Let us not only choose the way of wisdom, but to commit to love one another in ways that would appear foolish to the world because they're sacrificial, but are wise beyond the wisdom of Solomon. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a great treasure you have given us in the life and example of Solomon. Some to be followed, some to be ignored, but especially at the end to be followed. Let, give us hearts that would choose and love wisdom, that would choose the vast glory and joy of an infinite God in his kingdom rather than the little, paltry, puny, temporary joys of our own little kingdoms that we can muster up. Father, let us choose to love one another at Village Church sacrificially and care for one another abundantly. Do this, Father, for your son's sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.